0: The following message is given by Walt Alexander, lead pastor of Trinity Grace Church in Athens, Tennessee. For more information about Trinity Grace, please visit us at trinitygraceathens.com. Go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 8. I'm again reading in verse 31. The Word of God says, And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. It's the Word of God. The second book in C.S. Lewis's series, The Chronicles of Narnia, is Prince Caspian. It tells the story of Lucy and her three siblings and their return to Narnia. It's been one year since they went through the wardrobe and, and and explored Narnia, a place of wild-eyed adventures, talking animals, and the home of the great lion Aslan. When they arrived, though it had only been one year for the children, it was 1,300 years later in Narnia. As they begin to explore, they find the castle now in ruins and old. They find their weapons but covered in cobwebs from unuse. Even worse, they find that Narnia, the Narnia they love, is ruled by a foreign king. Prince Caspian, the rightful heir to the throne, is not in power and is in need of their help. And so Lucy, Peter, Edmund, Susan, along with Trumpkin, begin making their way to him. After what it would become a long journey, and after one of the days of this journey, while the rest of the crew were asleep, Lucy is waked by a voice calling her name in the night. Several times she hears, Lucy, Lucy. She doesn't immediately know what to do. It isn't the voice. It's not a voice she's, she immediately notices. It's not the voice of her father, not the voice of her brother. It's a different voice, so she begins to follow this voice out through the forest, and gradually she begins to make her way through the forest and into a glass, grass clearing, and there under the moonlight is the great lion Aslan. It was Aslan who was calling her name. She's thrilled with joy. She runs to him. She hugs him. She kisses him. She wraps her arms around him. She says, Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, at last I finally see you. Lewis says, he, he, Aslan rolls over to look her in the eyes and to bring her near. He looks, she looks back at him, gazing at his huge, wise face, and he says, welcome, my child. Lucy, though, is struck by his appearance and says, Aslan, you're, you're bigger. Aslan says, that is because you are older, little one. Are you sure? Is that not because you are older? Aslan says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Aslan, as we know, is the character patterned after Christ in the Chronicles of Narnia. And captured in this little scene is a wonderfully important biblical principle. The more you follow Jesus Christ, the bigger he will soon become. The more you follow him, the bigger he will seem to become. And though the, though the disciples have been following Jesus for two years, though they have uh, they finally seen that Jesus is the Christ and the rest of the gospel of Mark, Jesus will become bigger and bigger and bigger in their eyes. Oddly enough, Jesus will not become bigger by, by getting bigger, but by going lower and lower and lower. After the wonderful confession in our verses last Sunday that Jesus is the Christ, the gospel of Mark turns abruptly and immediately and begins making its way to the cross. There, Jesus will become bigger and bigger, not by going up, but by going down. Not by gaining power, but by embracing weakness. Not by gain, but by loss. Not by worldly wisdom, but by foolishness. Not by ascending an earthly throne, but by being nailed to a wooden cross. And when the disciples finally see all that he came to do, they will say, surely this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. But as Jesus makes his way to the cross, he calls all those who follow him to follow him to the cross as well. The cross is for him. The cross is also for you and for me. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said it well, the cross is laid on every Christian When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. If you're going to follow Jesus, you must follow him to the cross. In a word where we're going, if you're going to follow Jesus, you must follow him to the cross. We're going to unpack this in three points. The first is the king must take up the cross. The king must take up the cross, it's kind of obvious from our text, but we left the disciples, if you remember last week, after they finally realized that Jesus is a Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God's anointed king, that he's the one who's come to rule, and so they immediately assume that he's going to make his way to Jerusalem, and going to overturn all the foreign rulers that oppress the people of God. That was, in general, the expectation about the Messiah, about Jesus Christ. That's what they had been expecting for hundreds of years. Listen to this one little uh, a song, just written 100 years before the uh, birth of Jesus, that captures well what they expected from this king. This is one of the Psalms of Solomon. He says, "'O Lord, raise up their king, the son of David, that he may reign over Israel my servant, thy servant.'" Gird him with strength that he might shatter unrighteous rulers. That he might purge Jerusalem from nations that trample her to destruction. With a rod of iron he shall break in pieces all their substance. He shall destroy the godless nations with the word of his mouth. He shall gather together a holy people whom he will lead in righteousness. Jesus is the Christ. Christ. And so they assume this is what he came to do. But immediately after they confess that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus begins to teach them that what he came to do is not what they expected. In a word, he says the king must take up the cross. Look in verse 31. He said he began to teach them the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. There's many things we need to see here. We only have a few minutes. First, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. I heard the story of one pastor at a conference preaching a message that was quite atypical, quite unusual. Uh, He didn't go up to the podium and immediately open up a text and begin to preach it. He began slowly, though, reciting all the names for Jesus Christ and the scriptures. on and on and on. He went many, many different names. By one count, 198 names for our Lord in Scripture, each one telling uniquely of his finished work. And yet the name Son of Man is our Lord's favorite. Almost each of the hundred times this name, the Son of Man, occurs in Scripture. It is used by Jesus speaking of himself. Son of Man, (laughs) the Son of Man. Of man, first time it appears in this gospel, son of man is used generally in the Old Testament for son of a man or son of a woman. Uh, uh, so it's not surprising that Jesus uses this title in the midst of talking about his suffering of all that he must endure, being uh, uh, God the Son incarnate, being becoming a man. So it's not surprising that he uses that. But this name also refers to something else. I think we have it for you, Daniel seven. 13 and 14, uh, the prophet Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of the heavens, there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away His kingdom one that shall not be Destroyed. You see it right there. I saw in the clouds of heaven they came one like the Son of Man. Disciples would have known this prophecy well. And Jesus is saying, I am the one that, that David, that Daniel prophesied about. My kingdom is from everlasting, it shall never pass away. At this point, you can imagine the disciples beginning to lick their chops. And like, I don't know what, they're, what he's talking about with this suffering piece, but, but it surely seemed this is the Son of Man. Move over Caesar. He's about to show everyone who's boss. But then our Lord says, The Son of Man must suffer must suffer many things, be rejected, be killed. You can imagine the explosion in the mind. The son of man must suffer. The son of man must die. Your kingdom is forever. A live dog, Solomon says, is better than a dead lion. What kind of kingdom is a kingdom surrounded around a dead man? But Jesus knows exactly what they're expecting and is carefully unpacking the perfect plan of God. He says the Son of Man must suffer. This little word is often translated, it's necessary, or just simply necessary, or must. It's a little word unveiling the plan and will of God. Often labeled by theologians as divine necessity. What Jesus is saying is that it is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer in order to fulfill the will of God. Jesus lives with an acute sense of the will of God. We've seen this all throughout the the Gospel of Mark. He knows what he came to do. He knows what he didn't come to do. And part of that perfect will conceived in eternity past is for him to suffer. Acts 2 captures this very well. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know this, Jesus delivered up by Pilate. You fill in the blank. Delivered up? No. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Jesus lived with an acute sense that he was called to suffer. It's important for us to see Jesus is not reading the room. He's not sizing up the opposition. He's not a coach on the sidelines saying, Well, those linebackers look really, really big. And so most likely we're going to lose tonight. Prepare you, prepare you guys for a big loss. He, he's not even predicting or prophesying about what will happen. Jesus is unveiling the will of God so that when it happens, his disciples will not be surprised. He must suffer. The will of God that rules over everything, all things work according to the counsel of His will, has determined that the Son of Man who comes to save us must suffer. Each of the words that come after that, these verbs emphasize the passiveness of Jesus Christ. That He would suffer, that He would be rejected, that He would be killed. Indeed, that He would rise Again, so he tell. look at verse 33, 32, he's, he said this plainly. <laughs> he said it plainly. He must suffer, but Peter immediately has nothing of it. Jesus begins teaching him how he must suffer. Peter begins rebuking him for what he is teaching. One, one theologian said that, well, uh, for Peter, the indication that the son of man will die is unthinkable. For Jesus, it is inevitable. And so Peter says to him, he took him aside, and he began to rebuke him. You can imagine, you will not die. You can't die. You're the Christ. What are you talking about? The cross is a stumbling block for Jews because they thought the Messiah would reign forever on an earthly throne. And so Peter stumbles over the stumbling block and rebukes Jesus. Now why did Peter not believe in this moment? Peter has all the scriptures that you have, or he had all the Old Testament that you had. He knew Isaiah 53 that he would be pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. He quotes it in 1 Peter. Perhaps it's a case of cultural condition, conditioning. Many studies have come out, come out revealing why we see what we see. One study I read about recently uh, was comparing North Americans and Mexicans. Each person was presented with a different image at the same time in each eye. So Mexicans and Americans, North Americans were presented with a different image in each eye at the same time. They were presented uh, with one eye, they were presented a baseball player. In the other eye, they were presented a bullfighter. You can imagine what the study revealed. Overwhelming majority of North Americans saw the baseball player, something familiar to them. The overwhelming majority of the Mexicans saw the bullfighter. So the study concludes, we see because of the culture that conditions us. So if that's true, is that what's going on here? Is Peter just seeing in Jesus what he wants to see in Jesus? I think Peter's rebuke Or Jesus' rebuke of Peter reveals that something more is going on. Look at verse 33. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Peter rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. How the mighty have fallen. Peter confesses him that you're the Christ, Lord. Just minutes later, Jesus says to him, you are Satan. Jesus is saying this is more than cultural conditioning. The devil has been opposing the work of Jesus all along. The devil emerges in this little scene, wooing Peter over to the devil's work because there's nothing the devil's more opposed to than the cross, his great undoing. So the king must take up the cross. You may know about the the name King's Cross from London, from a London subway made famous by Harry Potter. But it's also the name of this series, and we see exactly why in this text. In many ways, the first eight chapters show us that Jesus is the king. And the next eight chapters, from these verses onward, show us that the king must take up the cross. Point two, all who follow the king must take up the cross as well. All who follow the king must take up the cross Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. The same word actually is used there. When he says, get behind me, Satan, he says, "Kind of, if anyone else would come behind me, where Satan you belong... Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For the the original recipients, the meaning of these words was obvious. But let's unpack them slowly. The First, if if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. You know, we often associate self-denial with those who abstain from certain things in order to please God. They may abstain from electricity or technology or dancing or alcohol or chocolate or whatever. But Jesus is after something more fundamental here than denying yourself certain external things. It may be good. You may want to celebrate Lent or something like that. But, but Jesus is after something more than, than, than merely uh, uh, external things that you deny yourself. Because of sin, there's an ingrained pecking order inside each of us in which we always want to be on the top. There's an ingrained desire to be number one. Now you you may say, that's not me. Nope, not me. I'm fine being on the sidelines. I'm fine doing the grunt work. But when you look at a high school picture, class picture, perhaps a family reunion picture, whose face do you go to first? Whose hair do you analyze? Or whose lack of hair do you analyze? Or, or when you get in an argument, a big one, one of those World War III type one in 10 arguments and you go away steaming, think of all the things you wish you had said, all the comebacks you should have uttered. Who wins? Who wins? I've lost a lot of arguments, but never one in my head. I want to be first. I want others to put me first. I want my problems to be first for everyone. I want to be the center of the universe. And I hate to break this to you. So do you. And in general, modern psychology does you no help when it comes to understanding and turning from this innate self-absorption. Martin Luther famously said, sin curves us in on ourselves and tries to make us the center of everything. John Calvin says, there is no one who in his heart of hearts does not imagine he deserves to outrank everyone else. Now that's a that's a good one. No, there's no one who, in his heart of ours, does not imagine he deserves to outrank everyone else. Thus, each person, in his own way, fondly nurses an entire kingdom in his heart. That's what Jesus is getting at. Each person nurses an entire kingdom. Jesus has said, "Before you can come, follow me, you must push yourself off the throne." Jesus' warning, there's, there, there, there's a way of trying to follow Jesus Christ in which you try to remain, number one, in which it's really all about you. It's all about your applause, all about your acclaim, all about your causes, all about your decision, all about your money. There's a way of following Jesus Christ, trying to baptize all of the things that, that, uh, uh, of this innate desire that's really all about you. Honestly, because of this ingrained desire, we're all like this. We, we want to say, Jesus, you must increase. But can I increase too? <laughs> can you throw me a bone? You know, can you raise my level too? And Jesus says, before you can follow me, you must deny yourself. You must turn away from saying, I must increase. You must turn away from advancing your kingdom. You must Lay down the weapons of your warfare. Then he says, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross. Death by crucifixion was sadly a common way of execution in the Roman Empire. In 71 BC, one Roman general crucified 6,000 of his enemies along the Appian Way coming out of Rome, the road. Can you imagine? 6,000 crosses. That's if there's a cross, every foot, that's over a mile. There's no way a cross is on every foot. Maybe it's every five feet, five miles, men hanging on crosses. Experiencing the most painful, shameful, and repulsive way of execution the human mind has ever invented. But the spectacle of crucifixion did not begin when the criminal was hung on the wooden beam. The spectacle of crucifixion began when the criminal began carrying his own crossbeam to the place of his death. If you saw a man carrying a crossbeam in the first century, he was not a carpenter lending a hand. He was a man on the way to his death, on the way to execution. And Jesus is saying, that's the way I want my disciples to look. That's the way I want my disciples to look like men walking to their execution. You know, among Christians, you know, it's off. I mean, we we have this little phrase. I just got to take up my cross. You know, we 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 may talk about these these petty annoyances of life that we have to deal with an irritable husband, an overbearing mother-in-law, an ingrown toenail, a global pandemic. These little irritations that we have to deal with, and we say we all have our crosses to bear. We got to just press through these hard things. That's what he's talking about. But that would have been unthinkable for the disciples. D.A. Carson says it like this, to take up your cross does not mean to move forward with courage to fight the fact that you lost your spouse, lost your job or your spouse. To take up your cross does not mean to move forward with courage despite the fact that you lost your job or your spouse. It means you're under the sentence of death. You're taking the horizontal cross member, horizontal cross member, on your way to the place of your execution, you've abandoned all hope of life in this world. And then Jesus says, "And only then are you ready? Are we ready to follow him? Take up your cross doesn't mean you're persevering joyfully through something difficult. Take up your cross means you've died to yourself. You've abandoned everything else and turned in complete allegiance to Jesus Christ, no matter what it costs. For some, taking up the cross, demonstrating full of allegiance to Jesus Christ, will mean martyrdom. Many of the apostles, as you know, were murdered. Their allegiance to Christ cost them their life. Many who received this gospel in Rome in AD 65 or so, were being martyred. You likely remember in 864, just after this gospel was written, things went from bad to worse. A disastrous fire swept Rome in July of that year and the emperor Nero began to blame Christians and he began to persecute them because of this blame, this, 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 uh, this indictment that they started this fire. He watched them be dismembered by dogs. He nailed them to crosses. He set them on fire to serve as lamps in the night. And these words would have steeled their veins for when the henchmen came. No surprise. It's what's predicted. It's what's promised. Many are still being martyred throughout the world, including what we hear, Christians in Afghanistan right now, So for some, it'll mean martyrdom, intense persecution. For all of us, it means death to self. Jesus begins, you must deny yourself. But then he adds, "When when he's saying take up your cross, you must die to yourself. Taking up the cross is not about denying yourself chocolates or cakes or cigarettes or cocktails. Taking up the cross is about living like you no longer live. There's, there's an old movie from the mid-90s that I haven't seen, but the title alone captivates me. It's called Dead Man Walking. It's about a man on death row for murder, and though he tries to deny the crimes he's committed, the movie goes step by step as he moves from receiving the sentence of death to receiving the execution of death. The, the, the movie begins on death row and ends... At lethal injection, he was throughout this whole movie a dead man walking. Like the, the, the sentence had come down, this guy was just a—he had, he had no other name to, to to identify himself in so many ways. He was just a dead man walking, and that's what Christians should be like. We're to be dead men walking. So here's the great takeaway for you: great application. Play dead. Play dead as best as you can. Be a dead man or a dead woman walking or moving about or going to work or doing the dishes. What's that mean? What do what I mean by that? You no longer live. You don't, you don't do what you want. You don't do what you like. You don't do what you desire to do. You don't do what you feel like doing. You are a dead man if you're following Jesus Christ. You know, I would commend to you something I do very often. One of the ways I preach the gospel myself is is I try to imagine, I go to the funeral of the old Walt Alexander every morning. I go there. I take up Galatians 2.20 and I preach this myself. I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. I've been crucified, therefore I no longer live. The things I live for, success, approval, 401Ks, any stupid thing like that. I'm not living for those things anymore. I no longer live. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself. So visit your, your, your grave. So it means you don't live for all those things. It means the only thing that matters is following Jesus and doing what pleases him. That's what Jesus is getting at. Matthew 10:38. whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He's not worthy. I mean, you know, you know Jesus, this is, this is harsh. This is hard. But this is the only way to live. This is the life of absolute joy because you no longer matter. I mean, imagine if we adopted this mindset. It would transform our home and marriages. John Stott says Christian homes in general and Christian marriages in particular would be a lot more stable and a lot more satisfying if they were marked by the cross. Christian homes and Christian marriage would be a lot more stable, a lot more satisfying if they were not marked by, uh, by chasing success. If they were mark, not marked by selfish ambition. If they were not marked by selfishness or any of these things, but if they were marked by self denial, by the cross. Imagine uh, in a culture where we're constantly told to monitor what we need, what we desire, what we want. What if our homes were about giving ourselves away? Imagine if husbands freely and repeatedly gave themselves away in love and sacrifice and care. Imagine if wives freely and repeatedly gave themselves away in support and respect and following. Imagine if there were no self-referential thoughts. How does this make me look? Is this what I want to do right now? Any of those things, they were all gone. It would be such a stable and satisfying place. No shoes to step on. If we adopted this mindset, it would transform our work as well. Imagine if you were out of the equation at work. If work was no longer where you were obsessed with jockeying for the position you want. If selfish ambition was not there. Imagine if work was no longer something you chased after to buy the things to let others know you made it. Imagine if work was no longer where you looked for approval or affirmation. Imagine if work was just a place where a dead man was coming to serve. You okay taking out the trash? Absolutely. You okay taking the care of these things? Absolutely. My desire is to glorify Christ. i tell you one thing, you'd be a lot more fun to work with, as would I. That's what he's getting at, dead men walking. <laughs> That's who I want to be. That's what we need to be. Point three, all who take up the king's cross will be welcomed into his kingdom. All who take up the king's cross will be welcomed into his kingdom. Finally, Jesus assures his disciples that the kingdom will come in power. And all who follow him will be welcomed into the kingdom. After the command, and deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, Jesus assures his disciples that all who follow him will be handsomely rewarded. The structure is very clear, and you probably see that in the text. Uh, after the command, there are four reasons why taking up the cross is gain. It doesn't look like gain. Each of uh, uh, the four sentences in 35 to 38 begin with four, which means because or since, unpacking reasons. And, and the, these cluster of verses hangs on the word life or soul. The, and the same word is used four times in this passage. either translated life, referring to physical life, or, 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 or translated soul to refer to spiritual life or eternal life. And we could spend weeks on these sentences drawing out implications, and I only have a few minutes. A couple things I want to say. Jesus is saying in a word, I'm going to break it out in three, three sentences. He says, whoever denies Christ in order to save his physical life will lose eternal life. Whoever denies Christ in order to save his physical life will lose eternal life. That's what he's saying in verse 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel's will find it. Whoever tries to save his physical life will lose his eternal life. Whoever loses his physical life for my sake in the gospel will save his eternal life. Jesus is saying, denying me in order to save your physical life will cause you to lose eternal life. You cannot save your physical life without losing your soul, your eternal life. You can't gain eternal life without dying in this way. And now we might want to say, wait, 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 wait. I thought you said the God, I mean, I thought the gospel was by grace you have been saved, not by works. Isn't this adding to the work of the gospel? My acceptance before God is based on whether I Deny or do not deny Jesus Christ. And obviously we do believe the gospel is you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not a work of your own, not something you can do. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying when trouble comes and when persecution comes, the test of whether your faith is genuine or fake will be whether you deny him or not. You know, we tend to believe that the core of our faith is between us and God. It's private, it's personal, it's our business, it's none of your business. I mean, this is my thing. I mean, we live in a country where individual liberty and the freedom of religion is woven into how we think. And so we think, this is just individual, this is just who I am. And, and if I just keep it personal, keep it between me and God, that's all that matters. But Jesus is saying, personal faith overflows in public witness. Now, it doesn't mean you've got to paint Jesus saves on your van, but it does mean you must stand for him. And with him, when the canceled police comes knocking, when the temptations to deny him and deny your identification with him come. The stakes are high. Christianity is not a silly, simple religion. Neil Postman, in his famous book, Stop Amusing Ourselves to Death, He says, I believe I am not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. (laughs) What we see in hard times, the vast majority of Christians are only Christians in name. Whoever... Denies Christ, or save his physical life, will lose eternal life. Whoever gains the whole world but loses eternal life, loses everything. That's the logic of verse 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The, the, these questions are so searching. They're so wonderful. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? The idea, I think, behind these verses, if you deny Christ in order to save your physical life and go on to secure great wealth, would you really gain anything if you lost eternal life? No. You would actually gain Nothing. Why? Why? Wouldn't your great wealth help? I mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't it help you? No, because eternal life cannot be bought. What's the price of eternal life? There is none except the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you will lose your great wealth and your eternal life. And, and, and these, these verses are just wonderful. You know, they're, 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 they, they alert us to what's true. These verses are like smelling salts to a bloody boxer. I mean, they awaken him. What looks like gain is not gain. What looks like loss is not loss. Because whoever gains the whole world but loses eternal life loses everything. But why? You know, all this seems so harsh. This seems so uh, cruel. And we see the reason in this last sentence in verse 38. For whoever denies Christ in order to save his physical life will be not denied entrance into the kingdom. Verse 38, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes with the glory of his Father with the heavenly angels. Jesus concludes this warning in a most haunting way. The Son of Man who came to suffer is the Son of Man who will stand in judgment. We must all appear, 2 Corinthians 5, before the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me, whoever hears my words and follows me but denies me, I will be ashamed of him as well. When I come into the glory of the Father, all who deny him will receive and experience the eternal torment. But wonderfully, the reverse is true. I trust you see that. Laced through these negative aspects. Whoever loses his physical life will gain eternal life. There are already uh, in heaven a, a, a room set aside for those martyrs in the faith. That's what we see in Revelation. And they're waiting for the full number to come in. Maybe some from Afghanistan right now. Maybe some from this country and a couple, well, in some time. So whoever loses his physical life. For the cause of Jesus Christ will gain eternal life. Whoever loses the world, turning his back on this world's gain, will, ter- will gain the life to come. Who's ever not ashamed of Jesus Christ, he will not be ashamed of Him in the end. <laughs> now, let's wrestle with this this week. Why does Jesus say, He will not be ashamed? I mean, that, that, I will not be ashamed of you. That hardly feels like a warm welcome. I am not ashamed to have you in my house. There's something very important going on. In in an honor and shame culture like that of the first century, the desire to gain honor and avoid shame shaped nearly every decision. They say that no one has more friends than someone with a truck. And it's similar In an honor and shame culture, in an honor and shame culture, you're always trying to get around those who will help you gain honor and recognition. You're always jockeying for position for the man with the truck. You get next to him, work with him, hang with him. You're always avoiding those, though, who might bring you shame and discredit. But Jesus turns this upside down. He says, all who deny him because they care too much about their honor and the way they appear before others to be associated with a cross-carrying Savior, he will be ashamed of them. All those who do not deny him, though they be guilty and vile, though they have sinned against him countless times in word, thought, and deed, though their faces may still be covered with shame for the sins they have done, he will not be ashamed of them will not be ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He will welcome them into his kingdom. Enter into my joy and and enter into your great reward. Here we see the upside down world of the gospel. The way up is down. The way of foolishness is wisdom. The way of loss is gain. The way of worldly shame is rejoicing. The way of death is life. The idea you, Jesus, will not be your debtor. You follow him, you take up your life, you die, you will gain great reward. All you lose and follow him will flow back to you, a hundredfold. A year or so ago, I watched the movie The Hidden Life with Kim. I don't know if I recommend the movie, not because of anything questionable, but because Kim found it so slow that she slept right through it. I watched it to the end, though. It, it told the true story of a young Christian man from Austria who chose the guillotine, that is death, rather than fight with Nazi Germany. Now, have you ever wondered why stories like this are so uncommon? Because most so-called Christians in Germany bowed the knee to Hitler. Anyway, he served briefly in 1940 before being discharged to care for his farm. He was called out three years later. That's a true story, but he refused. He'd experienced some sort of religious awakening. And he said it was impossible for him to be a Christian and a national socialist. Possibly be a Christian and be associated with Nazi Germany. He was arrested. Time and again, they said to him, all you have to do is sign up and you will be free. He kept telling himself, I am free. I'm already free. He wrote his wife from prison, I write to you with bound hands, but bound hands are better than a bound will. Giving myself over. He walked straight to death, knowing that he was leaving his wife and children behind, and knowing that his death would not stop the Nazi war machine. Even worse, his decision in his death was looked on as foolishness by all his friends, as stupidity, and made life for his family, now fatherless, more difficult. But this man and everyone else who's not ashamed to stand for Jesus Christ will be welcomed into his kingdom. If you're going to follow Jesus, follow him all the way to the cross. It's where all this is going. We might be dead men walking into new life more and more and more and more. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of gathering to consider this call. Lord, we praise you and worship you that we have your word that locates us and make sense of so many things that are challenging in this world. Lord, we long to be those who take up our cross and follow you. That our, our lives would be more and more cruciform, dead to our own flesh and our own passions, our own desires, and alive more and more to you, to your purposes, to the Spirit, to the Word, and the cause of Christ. We pray for it. Awaken us. There's so much white noise right now. Pray through all that, that you would call us out to follow you and to follow your steps to the cross. For there we'll find our salvation. But also... Our glory and our great reward. We might become like you, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes by faith, that by any means possible we might attain the resurrection of the dead and receive our citizenship in heaven. We praise you and worship you. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Walt Alexander, lead pastor of Trinity Grace Church in Athens, Tennessee. For more information about Trinity Grace, please visit us at trinitygraceathens.com.